But do please keep your Bibles open to them as we will work through these verses. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, during the past 20 minutes, while we have been worshiping God with our songs of praise and while we have confessed our sins to him, and right this minute also, as we prepare to hear God's word being proclaimed, on the other side of the Atlantic, in Belfast, Ireland, it's 3 p.m. right now their time, there's a play happening. It's being performed at the Outburst Queer Arts Festival, and it was written by Joe Clifford, a transgender man, identifies as a woman, and it's called The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven. The play imagines this transgender Jesus coming back to the world today, teaching people, proclaiming the gospel, and giving communion. And I won't, for your sake, describe everything that happens in that play, but let me read you what Clifford himself said about this play. He said these words, As a practicing Christian myself, I have no interest in attacking the church or mocking the church or making fun of the church in any way or being blasphemous or offensive. I simply want to assert very strongly, as strongly as I can, that Jesus of the Gospels would not in any way wish to attack or denigrate people like myself. I think, he says, it's very important to get the message across that the Jesus of the Gospels would not condone or want to promote prejudice and discrimination against anybody and try to convey a message of compassion and love and understanding of everybody, no matter what their belief, no matter what their gender, orientation, or sexuality. So far from Clifford. What are we to make of this situation? While we're here worshiping God and confessing our sins in his holiness, hundreds of people are watching this play and taking part and taking away this message about the Lord Jesus. So it raises the question, can we make Jesus into whoever we want him to be? Can we automatically expect and assume that he takes our side, whatever cause it is that we feel committed to? Now, I don't doubt for a second that most of us would insist, no, absolutely not. Of course you cannot do that with Jesus. It is blasphemous to even think about it. And actually, I think that Clifford would agree. He himself kept insisting that the Jesus of the Gospels would never do this or that, would never prejudice against homosexuals, would only ever affirm them. And so it raises the question for us, how do we know that the Lord Jesus is on our side? How do we know that we haven't simply assumed, like they are, that we knew that we know who he is and what he is all about, what his mission is in this world? And take it a step further. If we're reading our Bibles with open hearts and open minds, ready to hear what God would teach us, we will discover things about the Lord Jesus that offend our sensibilities and that are hard to swallow. What do we do then? Well, it's clear from our text that John the Baptist struggled with this question as well. We might not have expected that uncertainty and doubt 
They don't strike us as something characteristic of this wilderness prophet who called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and who warned people with such strong language to repent or they wouldn't enter the kingdom of God. This, after all, was the prophet who saw Jesus and pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's hard to imagine how such a bold and fearless prophet could also struggle with doubts. And yet in our text, he sends messengers to Jesus with this humble question that's just trembling with uncertainty and questions and doubts. He asks, are you, are you the one to come or should we look for another? So that's the question that we'll consider this morning. And I summarize the message with this theme. The promised Savior has come. Blessed is the one who's not offended by him. We'll see first the sincere doubts of John the Baptist. Then we'll look at the Lord Jesus' answer and see the certain truth concerning Jesus Christ. And finally, if what our Lord says is true, then also we'll consider the serious conclusion that every one of us must consider. The scene opens with the disciples of John. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to John. Now, the things here are presumably the events that just took place in the earlier parts of the chapter. In verses 1 through 10, Jesus heals a centurion's servant. And then in verses 11 through 17, which we read, he raises a widow's son from the dead. We then read in verse 16, that fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So those are the things that the disciples of John the Baptist reported to him. And so we should wonder then, why does John respond the way that he does? We're familiar with the story of John the Baptist, and so we might expect him to say, yes, the people are finally getting it. They're finally believing. But that's not what John says. Instead, he sends some messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Why would John ask that after hearing the reports that he just heard? Now, one explanation that some people give is that he hadn't yet believed in Jesus. He hadn't yet realized that Jesus was the Messiah. And then they interpret this as an excited question, they, as if he's saying, could it possibly be that Jesus is the one who I've been prophesying about? Then he would be considering for the first time that Jesus is the Messiah. The problem with that view, though, is that we already know from chapter 3 that Jesus was baptized by John, and then in John's own hearing, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John would have been there to hear all of that. And we know from other Gospels that John specifically pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So it's hard to imagine that that's what's going on here, that John hadn't yet realized who Jesus was. A more likely explanation for his question can be found in the kinds of things that John had said about Jesus and about the one who's coming after him. We find those in chapter 3. You may turn there if you 
you wish, chapter 3, verse 15, you find a similar question to the one that John is asking now, except in that case, it's the people asking themselves this question about John. Luke chapter 3, verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now, here's what I believe is the reason that John became confused about Jesus. He says next, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. Well, what does this have to do with John's doubts in chapter 7? Well, simply this, the Lord Jesus hadn't done any of that. He didn't baptize anyone with the Holy Spirit yet. And he didn't clear that proverbial threshing floor, separating the righteous and gathering them and burning the wicked with unquenchable fire. That was John's warning. He said in chapter 3, verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root. Of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and burned. Yet Jesus never did that. Jesus' ministry was powerful, yeah, to be sure. And the people certainly recognized that a great prophet was among them and that God had visited his people. But where was the justice that John had been waiting for? Where was that fire? Where was the wrath and the punishing of evildoers? Why? Why were corrupt leaders still getting away by, with trampling God's honor, getting away with murder? How could it be that Jesus would not do anything about this? It's obvious, yes, that God was at work in Jesus, but could he still be the one that John had promised? So the reason that John asks this question is because he was disappointed. As he languished in prison, he had been thrown there by Herod, he seems to have grown disillusioned with this Jesus. The once bold and fearless prophet now sends his messengers to Jesus, and he simply asks him, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus, I don't know anymore. This isn't what I expected. I thought you were the one. Are you? Or was it supposed to be someone else? Now notice, back in chapter 7, that the question is written down twice. It's in verse 19, and it's also in verse 20. Verse 19 again. Calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Why does Luke take the effort to write this question down twice? He obviously doesn't include every detail in every story, but here he takes the time to repeat the question. And he does this because it's such a critical question, not just for John the Baptist, but for everyone hearing the gospel. And especially, it's an important question because it's the famous prophet John the Baptist who's asking it. So he wants to draw our attention to this question and to get us to start thinking about what Jesus will say. Is Jesus the one who is to come, or should we look for another? What is Jesus going to say? What arguments can he give for himself? 
Is this going to be the moment that he reveals himself to everyone? Luke does this because he knows that it's not just John the Baptist's question. It's the question of a lot of Jews of his time who are considering the claims of Christianity, and possibly even the question that Theophilus, that's the man he's writing to, possibly his question as well. Is Jesus the one who is to come? How could it possibly be that he is, and still the Jewish people rejected him? So Luke expects that this might be the reader's question as well. And so he asks us to stop and to consider the Lord Jesus' response to this all-important question. And then before we get to the Lord's answer, Luke quickly reminds us of everything that's been going on here. Verse 21. In that hour, he had healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So at that hour, the hour that the disciples of John show up, amazing things had been going on. And they all testify to the fact that Jesus was sent from God. So realistically, the Lord Jesus could probably say just about anything at that moment, and it would have carried indisputable authority. Who's going to argue with a man who just raised a young man from the dead? Whatever claim Jesus makes, it will be backed up by the authority of God who gave him the power to do these works. And that prepares us to hear his answer. And his answer is so important. Verse 22, he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. This is amazing. Jesus' answer is amazing here. If you think about it, what kind of answer is this? John already knows everything that the Lord Jesus is telling him here. That's what his disciples had just reported to him in verse 18. They reported all these things to him. So what kind of answer is this? Can't the Lord Jesus just say, yes, yes, I'm the Christ, or no, I'm not? What's his point? Why is he telling John the Baptist what he already knows? He's telling John the Baptist what he already knows because John the Baptist apparently hasn't made the connection between what he's hearing about what the people are seeing and what they're saying and what Scripture says about the Savior who is to come. The language that the Lord Jesus uses in his answer is unmistakable. This is scriptural, prophetic language. It's taken almost verbatim from various parts of the prophets. It's not a direct quotation from any one passage, but it's almost like a chorus of prophetic voices all coming together and all saying the same thing. The day of the Lord has certainly come. We read some of those passages earlier from Isaiah, and John, the wilderness prophet, would surely have had them memorized as he preached to the crowds out in the wilderness. And yet, amazingly, John the Baptist has somehow missed that part of Isaiah's prophecy and of the other prophets. He's hearing about the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, and lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, dead people being raised up, and he's still asking, when? When are the scriptures going to start being fulfilled? So when Jesus sends the messengers back to John the Baptist, he doesn't give him the direct answer that he's looking for because John the Baptist and the crowds, and we too, 
need to see it for ourselves from Scripture. John the Baptist had his mind set on a certain kind of Messiah, and the Lord Jesus directs him back to the Scriptures that he would have known so well and tells him, look for the truth yourself there, in the only place where certainty and truth may be found. The Lord Jesus could have just told him, yes, I am the Messiah, and those things that you're waiting for, they'll happen in due time. But then he never would have given John the Baptist either the correction or the certainty that he needed. So he tells him, go back to the scriptures, John, which you know so well. Consider them all, though, not just the ones that you know and that make sense to you, and let those scriptures expand your vision they will testify that I am indeed the one who is to come. The Lord Jesus doesn't simply give John the answer he's looking for, but he gives him the perspective and the certainty that he needs. And the perspective and certainty that we need, is Jesus the promised Savior? There's only one way to find the answer to that, and that's by comparing him to the Word of God. Then the Lord Jesus says the words of verse 23, And let's all examine our hearts as we read that warning. The Lord Jesus concludes with a tender, serious warning to John the Baptist and also to all of us who are reading this now. We'll start back up in verse 22 again. He answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. For John the Baptist and for us, this is the critical point. His doubts were not because of a lack of evidence that the Lord Jesus was the promised Savior, but because the Lord Jesus wasn't entirely the kind of Savior that he was expecting or hoping for. He was waiting for a Savior who would bring justice, one who would punish all of his and God's enemies. And we can sympathize with him. His heart was filled with the same plea that all believers feel when they see and experience terrible suffering and injustice. Lord, bring down justice on their heads. In the words of Psalm 69, pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. These are righteous, biblical emotions, and they would, in due time, be satisfied. The Lord Jesus did, some decades later, pour out his wrath on the city of Jerusalem when the, city of that, when the sin of that city had reached its, its fill. And for us, too, he will bring justice for every evil thing on this earth. And yet John needed to realize that that is not the Lord's only mission. And if it were, none of us would survive. The kind of Jesus that the Pharisees were waiting for, he never came because he never existed except in their imagination. But the Lord Jesus was also not exactly the kind of Savior that John the Baptist had been hoping for, even though he knew the scriptures so well. The Lord Jesus had a much greater mission than the one that John expected, and one that, if we're honest with ourselves, probably we never would have expected either. 
He didn't come just to destroy God's enemies, the enemies of God that we have identified. He also came to make a sacrifice that would free us from the guilt of our own sin and from the wrath of God that we deserved. A sacrifice that somehow neither John, somehow either John hadn't considered or had forgotten about. And if we're honest, it's probably a mission that we wouldn't have thought much of either if we were in his shoes. But he came anyways for that purpose, giving himself up so that John the Baptist and we too would not perish in that judgment that John the Baptist was waiting for. Yes, it was his mission to bring justice in due time, and he would, but also, surprisingly, though it never should have been surprising, to bring mercy and to bring hope, to give sight to those who were blind, to see what they needed most, and to heal us all of our greatest infirmity, which is the sin that plagues our hearts. For John the Baptist, this was a tender warning, but a serious warning. Jesus is not harshly rebuking him, but soberly warning him and all of us, do not let your personal version of a Messiah, your personal opinion of what he should be like, do not let that keep you from believing in the only true Messiah who came into this world. Do not just assume that the Savior will be on your side. Make sure that you're on his side. God's word is the only standard by which we may measure our Savior, and blessed is he whose heart does not keep him from believing in that Savior. So the Lord Jesus points us back to Scripture and reminds us not only to seize on those parts of Scripture that make sense to us, that conform to the ideas we already have or prefer to have, but to be honest students of Scripture with open hearts, willing to learn, willing to be challenged, and willing to compare our thoughts with what Scripture teaches us. It is one thing to have an idea of who God is, what God is like and who Jesus is and what he is like, and to find confirmation of that in Scripture. It's another thing to go humbly to Scripture, expecting to learn, expecting to be taught and even challenged by Scripture. For God's word not to just confirm what we already believe, that's relatively easy, but to shape what we believe and to inform what we believe. That takes deep humility and respect for the word of God. What he says there, and all of what he says there, ought to shape what we believe, and especially when it comes to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. What a strong and difficult warning, especially for a man like John the Baptist, who gave so much of his life to the Lord's service. We should notice that our text never tells us how John the Baptist responded to Jesus' words. Instead of offering a conclusion to that story, Luke leaves the Lord Jesus' answer open for all of us to consider as well. If John the Baptist ran the risk of stumbling over the true Lord Jesus and becoming offended by him, then we had better take this warning to heart as well. There is no doubt that Joe Clifford and the homosexual community in Belfast, they will be faced with the awful truth that the Lord Jesus is not at all who they thought he was. But beside them, there will also be many in the church who found themselves unable to accept the true Lord Jesus unless he was willing to tolerate their sins or become the kind of person that they felt he needed to be. Otherwise, they could not let go of their sin and could not believe in this Savior. 
We can notice also later in the gospel that the disciples, they had their own notions of who Jesus ought to be. They were hoping for a Messiah who would wage war against Israel's enemies. They found it unacceptable that the Lord Jesus would suffer and die, and they could not understand what he meant by it. By God's grace, they received God's correction. But the Jews of Jesus' day also found him unacceptable because he came to save them from their sin and not from the Romans, because he called them to humble and heartfelt repentance and not to their man-made religions. And they ultimately rejected and even crucified the Lord Jesus. In our day, in this intervening period, while we wait for the return of Christ, it's easy if we want for every person to imagine their own Jesus, the social activist Jesus, the American Jesus, the feminist Jesus, the fundamentalist Jesus, the tolerant Jesus. But there is only one Lord, Jesus, and he is enthroned in heaven, and he will return with power. How many people, when confronted with that Jesus, will find him unacceptable? So blessed indeed are those who do not find in the Lord Jesus a stumbling block, something that they cannot accept, something that prevents them from believing in him. Blessed are those who hear him on his own terms and on the terms of God's word where his coming is promised. Blessed are those who embrace him as Savior, the Savior that we never hoped for or never even expected or deserved. Blessed indeed, for in him is every blessing and every joy, far more than we could ever hope for or imagine. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing together from hymn 25, stanza 1.